0: Well, greetings to you all and blessings. Uh, Let's return now to our Old Testament study in the book of Micah, chapter 5. Last time we primarily looked at the first four verses of this chapter. And today we're going to pick up the text beginning in verse 5 and extend through verse 9. And here in these verses, what we're going to see is the deliverance of Judah by the hand of her expected one, by the hand of, of her Messiah. And if we look at chapter 5 as a whole, the central figure is none other than this Messiah, than, than Jesus Christ. Um, it's not Assyria. It's not Babylon. It isn't Judah. It's, it's not, even, not even the remnant of Jacob, which is mentioned in today's text. No, the central person of this chapter, is the one who will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So, so as we consider the details of this text, as we uh, ask questions regarding the, the verses here, the challenging questions that that have to do with Times with the prophecies, with fulfillment, or the or the historical context. Let's keep in mind the greater context that the central message all points to this man, one Jesus. Um, the main point here in chapter five is that he will deliver us. That we're going to see in verse six, Jesus Christ, the promised seed, Israel's Messiah. He will arise and shepherd His flock. He will arise and shepherd His flock. And in Him is found abundant provision. Abundant provision. That's what I've titled today's lesson, Abundant Provision. And we're going to look at, um, first, it's kind of an introductory point, uh, before and after, but we're going to look at abundant provision in Christ that's, and it's revealed in confidence, in blessing, and in victory. So abundant provision. Well, as we, or before we begin, let's. I want to read the whole chapter, Micah chapter 5. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops, they have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain. Because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword the land of Nimrod, at its entrances. And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation, which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which, if he passes through, tramples down and tears, and there is none to rescue. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be cut off. It will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you will have fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you, so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root out your asherim from among you and destroy your cities. And I will execute vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Almighty Father, Lord, before your throne we come and... um, We are thankful, Lord, to have copies of Your Holy Word that we can read it in abundance. We can read it in our own language. We can have many resources to go back and to look into original languages. We have myriads of sermons that have been preached on Your Word throughout the ages. And, um, Lord, we thank You to publicly gather, to read it, to study it, to chew on it, and to consider, Lord, what your word has been, what your word is, and what your word will be. And that we get to consider and to remember and rejoice and praise and worship and repent before the man Christ Jesus and seek him, seek the abundant blessing and provision that's found in him. May you bless our time together and bless your holy word, Lord. In Christ we pray. well in the in the tv game show wheel of fortune one of the games one of the puzzles presented is the the game that's called before and after and here in this category each word in the puzzle is related to the previous word in the puzzle to make up a well-known phrase or, or sentence, or name. They're just fun little catchphrases that are familiar to, to most, every one of us. But there's, there's a before and an after. One word makes up what comes before and what comes after. And while we don't have something very similar that occurs here in chapter 5, in two instances actually, and the first is found in verse 5, the second is found in verse 9. And in both cases, the sentence that, that we read, that, that's placed here, the sentence here, it directly connects to what came before, and yet it connects to what follows after it. Um, looking quickly at verse 5, we have this sentence here. This one will be our peace. For instance, we can read it as such. We can connect it to verse 4. And He will arise and shepherd His flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord His God, and they will remain. Because at that time He will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. See how it fits? Now we can also connect it to verse 5 and read it this way. This one will be our peace. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against Him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And He will deliver us from the Assyrian when He attacks our land and when He tramples our territory. We can connect it to the He will deliver us. There's a before and after. And, and, and if we look down at the latter half of verse 9, is similar. And, and we can approach... Here and all your enemies will be cut off in a in a similar fashion, where the cutting off is associated both with Judah's enemies, her adversaries, and what what comes before and what follows after is her own idols, her enemies as her own idols. Well, well, how do these two verses? How does viewing these two verses help us? Uh, how do we view it? How does that help us? Any? If we view it that way. Well, first, the intentional placement of words and of phrases within the Scripture and the occasional play on words, especially that Micah does within his book, uh, it reveals to us the humanity of Micah. He's not a robot. He's not in a trance-like state while, while pinning the words of God. No, he, he, he is a real person. And this is the means via which God used to communicate His will and His Word. Um, He he was a man who had deep emotions. He wasn't unaffected by what was going on uh, in his nation, in his hometown, to his neighbors. He wasn't unaffected by that. He's, He's expressing himself in poetic language. Not just figurative. Not just literal. But a combination of the two. He's using poetry in a very beautiful way, in a very deep way, to express real truths. Truths that are going on around him. Truths that will take place. He dealt with real questions, with real answers. And he did so without sounding like a technical manual. No, he, he did it with, by employing humor, by pulling out current events, by using his own experience... By, by bringing passion, by bringing emphasis to things. So, so we recognize, one, in, in viewing these verses that way, that God has a myriad of ways of presenting His, His Word and His will. And He does it through broken people. But real people. Real people. Second, the section of verses 5-9... through nine, is is bracketed by these two emphatic statements here the 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 will be's these they they state very definite truths they speak very concrete truths this one will be our peace and verse 9 and all your enemies will be cut off when judah experiences the deliverance of god in their own persons, in their own nation, in their own land, in their own territory, um, and by the removal of her enemies, and even the removal of war, which we had looked about in in a previous chapter, when she experiences that, they have the preface to the book, if you will, this one will be our peace. They have the preface there to inform them what they're seeing, what they're experiencing, what they will see and experience in this deliverance, um, that that the fulfillment, the all your enemies will be cut off, they have the preface to inform the fulfillment. And in this worldview, this viewing of life, it extends further into the following verses. Um, when we have that even the presence of the enemy of God is even found within the body of His own people. See, this one will be our peace. Yet your enemies are going to be cut off. But guess what? Enemies is not just external. There's some internal ones as well. So this one will be our peace sets our eyes upon how we ought to view struggles. How we ought to view conflict. How we ought to view difficult times. Difficult invasions even of sin. And if you wanted to break this down into soteriological terms, we could say that verse 5 is justification. Peace with God. This one will be our peace. We can look at verse nine and say that verse nine is a statement of of sanctification being a being made holy, a being set apart, a cutting off of the enemy and then verses ten through through fourteen or fifteen is kind of a joint statement of sanctification and glorification, a total removal of the presence of sin, a total removal. Of the presence of sin, so it's it's a it's a process that that ultimately leads to the total absence of sin. So if we view this, the remainder portion of this chapter, we can view it through those through that lens as well. Well, in this chapter, we have Judah as pictured both before and after her deliverance by her Messiah. Well, she's, she's besieged by the enemy in, in verses 1 and 2. Especially 1. She's besieged. Um, and, and she's besieged from without. But it progresses to her being delivered from her enemies both without and within. So we see Judah pictured here both before and after her deliverance by her Messiah. And even as we have considered previously, that the entrance of Jesus Christ into the world, what we read in verses 2 and 3, the entrance of Jesus Christ into the world, is, is He is that hyphen between B.C. and A.D., the before and the after. And it's His entrance into your heart that regeneration which was spoken of earlier. It is His entrance into your heart that is the only way in which your soul can be at peace. In which there can be no conflict between man and God. And it is His presence within your heart that is the impetus for the fight of sanctification. If He's not there, there's no fight. There's no conflict. You're in agreement with it. And it is whether or not his image is stamped upon you now that will determine your eternal destiny. So if, Christ, if, if the Father looks down and he sees Christ in you, you're in his kingdom, you belong to him. But if the Father looks down and He doesn't see the image of Christ, if you aren't made in the image of Christ, well, you're not in His kingdom. Depart from Me. Well, now we look at verses 5 and 6, and we're going to see abundant provision in confidence. Abundant provision in confidence. And these two verses here, they show us just what Judas is facing. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels. And you may be tired of hearing about Sennacherib and these 185,000 man army. Maybe you're tired of hearing about it, but nonetheless, that is what Judah is facing here. That's what she's looking at, that's what she's staring in the face at this moment. And when Micah. Speaks of the Assyrian invading and trampling, he's not speaking metaphorically or figuratively here. He's speaking very much contemporarily, very literally, very much historically. But despite the literal nature of the enemy threat, you know, Micah here is not speaking with negativity. He's not speaking in gloom and doom. No, he's speaking with exuberant joy, with confidence. How does he do that? Well, he's not ignoring the fact that there is an overwhelming force facing him, facing his nation. He's not ignoring it. Listen, this is the world, the world power, and their ruthless army. I mean, no. Fish hooks in the mouth. Dragging people. Ruthless. Their army is is on the doorstep. But he's not burying his head in the ground. He's not ignoring this ugly truth. He recognizes it. He recognizes that there is a fact that they, Judah, is in trouble. Israel's been carried off. And now Judah's facing the threat. Judah, we're in trouble. Assyria is invading. No, he doesn't ignore it, but he makes a statement of fact that Assyria will invade the land and trample it underfoot. Listen, just because the king is coming, just because Messiah is coming, he he just, he previously talked about it. Hey, one is coming. One is coming. He's going to come forth and be ruler for me. Just because the king is coming doesn't mean that hard times won't come. No. Assyria still invades. They still assault Judah. You can't think of Christ like a genie in a bottle. Oh, let me just rub it a little bit when I need some help. You cannot think of Christ as a genie in a bottle. Likewise, you cannot simply think of Him as a Savior. Well, let me just pray a prayer right quick, and all of a sudden everything is going to be well, and all my troubles are going to go away. No. When when Joshua was outside Jericho, when he was conducting reconnaissance, he saw another captain out there, didn't he? He saw another captain out there. And he, he approached him, and he asked him, Hey... Are you for, for us? Are you for our adversaries? He wanted to know, are you a friend or a foe? And I love the answer here. I love the response by this other captain. He said no. What? No. No. No what? No, rather now, I come as, I come as captain of the host of the Lord. Joshua, you've asked the wrong question. You have asked the wrong question question. And Judah here, Judah, essentially Micah can be, can be saying this, remember Judah that the Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than the rest. No. No. And Christian, don't think that since you have received Christ, all your problems are going to disappear. No. It doesn't work that way while your sins may have been spiritually dealt with in the physical death of Christ, while that may be true, your, sti- your sins still have physical consequences. They do. And while Jesus indeed is your Savior, He also is your Lord. He is your Master. And as the Lord, He calls the shots. He's in charge. He gets to determine. He gets to determine. Well, Micah follows this statement here that that Assyria will invade. He follows this statement of fact with another statement of fact. When this happens, then this happens. When Assyria invades, then we will raise against him we will raise against Him. Well, what is that? We will raise against Him. The enemy's going to come in and we're going to fight back. What is this? Is this, is this patriotic? Braggadocio? Murder! No. Is this, is this childlike egotism? Well, my dad can beat up your dad. You're going to invade? Well, my dad, he's going to kick you out. Is that what this is? Well, I found, I found two clues here within the passage to help me gain an understanding of what exactly was Micah saying when he's talking about raising up shepherds and leaders. And the first is the language itself. Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. Seven and eight. Consider these verses with me. In Job 5.19 it says... From six troubles He will deliver you. Even in seven, evil will not touch you. Proverbs 6.16 says, There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Ecclesiastes 11.12 Divide your portion to seven or even to eight. So the expression here of of six and seven, this, this combination, this comparison... Uh, this, including both six and seven consecutive numbers, is a, a Hebrew linguistic practice that simply indicates totality. It indicates completeness, perfection, and, and probably probably the first biblical mention of this we find actually in Genesis. Imagine that, but we find it in Genesis with the creation week: six days of work, one day of rest is seven complete week a single complete week well when that number increases by by increment of 1 to no longer 6 and 7 but 7 and 8 it's it's not necessarily a, a literal a literal number but rather it's a hebrew again poetic device that that shows not just perfection now but more than enough an abundant provision. Your cup overflowing. Seven and eight. So that's that's clue number one. Clue number two is, is simply context here. And we go back again to verse 5 where it says, This one will be our peace. And in six, and He will deliver us. Micah's not all of a sudden doing a 180 here he he doesn't go from from lifting up this one who's going to be our peace and talking about this one who will deliver us and now he's he's done it about face and he's he's talking about his his country's military might or its political strength and, and and treaties that they've made no he's not doing that he, Micah is simply saying that Because Messiah is going to deliver us, because He is our peace, then we put our trust in Him. And because we put our trust in Him, we can approach this army, this world power, we can approach it with confidence. We can approach a formidable enemy with confidence not because our army is so great, not because our leaders are just top-notch, but because God is faithful. Because He's our peace, and He's going to deliver us. We can approach it with confidence. Just like, just like in Samuel, where Jonathan and his armor-bearer is going up and they're, they're viewing this, this outpost of, of the Philistines, and, uh, and he says, Hey, come. Let's cross over to the garrison. There's a garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. I love this. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. you got two guys, two young guys, by themselves, crossing over, very explicitly actually, in full view, to waylay a whole garrison. A whole encampment. The Lord's not restrained. That's, that's the attitude here. Confidence. Despite all appearances. Despite the forbiddable nature of the enemy. Straight up confidence. This is not braggadocio. For it was arrogance that led Judah here in the first place. It led them here to this point of near total failure. He's not going back and getting on the arrogant horse again. No, this is peace while facing impending destruction. This is exactly what we sang in the hymn earlier. Though a host should encamp against me, yet in this I will be confident. This is David penned in the Psalms. In this I will be confident. What we find in verses 5 and 6 is an interplay between faith and works. That's what we have. Place your faith in Christ alone and do your duty. Do your duty. You see, Michael. Uh, excuse me, Micah, he doesn't suggest that they simply let go and let God. He doesn't suggest that. No, he says instead, we will raise against Him. Seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. And he, not they, and he will deliver us. He will deliver us. You see, Judah, Judah is still fulfilling her obligation, her responsibility to provide leaders and defenders for her populace. She still sends her army to war when attacked. Judah is still fulfilling her responsibility by this statement. But the prophet here recognizes and he plainly declares that the deliverance will come not through the horse, not through the arms of a man, but by this, this man of peace, by this shepherd, by this great shepherd. By the abundant provision of God, we will raise more than enough leaders and deploy them at multiple levels, both tactically, hand to hand, in the field, to strategically, on paper, theory, concept, war, plans. We will deploy these leaders in multiple levels to the heart of the evil empire to Assyria to the land of Nimrod but it's the Messiah who's going to bring the victory it's Messiah who's going bring the peace and the great thing about this truth folks is that it is applicable in every institution it is impl- applicable on every level let's think about that a minute This fact, this truth, this reality that ought to grip us that our faith is not in our activities. Our faith is not in what we are able to accomplish and plan and perform. But it's in God who gives us ideas, who gives us strength, who gives us resources. Our faith is in God. Well, let's look at that At each level, on an individual level, on a personal level, you and I can say, with the power of the indwelling spirit, we can say no to sin. If you have the indwelling spirit, you now have the power to say no. You can say, No, I'm not gonna do it. If he dwells within you, you have the ability to simply not do sin. Cool. It's applicable on a family level where where parents establish and enforce rules and codes of behavior by the authority and the power of the Word of God. It says, you want to talk about raising shepherds and leaders? Fathers, raise up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Talk about raising shepherds. Leaders and shepherds? Raise them up in your own kids. Raise them up in your own family. Raise leaders. Raise them. But you're raising them, and you recognize this, or you ought to recognize it, that they're not yours. God gave them to you. God entrusted them to you. You're doing it under His authority. It's delegated authority. But He's given that responsibility to you and I well it's applicable on a national level when 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 rightly exercised when when justly conducted the branches the different branches of government they they create they interpret and they execute and enforce the laws of a nation in accordance with the power vested in them by God himself to the end to what end to the end that sin is restrained and that its populace can live at peace with each other and at peace with other nations. I mean, just read the first, first several verses of Romans 13 and that's what you're going to see. It's power invested in the state by God for the restraint of evil, for good, for good. And it's applicable in the church level when the body recognizes and chooses for herself um, leaders who govern the body with confidence. Not with self confidence, but with confidence that the great shepherd is in their midst. And the great shepherd is in their midst and exercising his authority through the leaders, through the through the, 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 the local um, eldership, with the power of the gospel. It's the Word of God that has the authority. It's the Word of God that has the power. And the Gospel goes forth via spoken, preached, mentored, discipled Word to change hearts and lives and wills. And the Great Shepherd is given the victory through the local body. Now, in considering this connection here between the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod, I simply just point you to Genesis 10 to do your own study. Well, they're in the table of nations and it talks about who comes from who and which nation comes from, from, from which person. But it mentions both of, both of these. Nimrod. and It mentions Ashur. Ashur who is the father of the Assyrians. So I simply point you there. But, but Assyria and Nimrod here is, is representative of an imperial power. And, and that is a rule that encompasses multiple kingdoms, multiple regions, a variety of, of, of um, jurisdictions. But it's all under a single head, all under a single authority. And and biblically, when we think about an imperial power, we think about Assyria. We think about Babylon. We think about the Tower of Babel that was the beginning of an imperial power. We think about Rome. But primarily, I think this is best portrayed as mystery Babylon, which is referenced in, in Revelation 17. That being the kingdom of Satan. The kingdoms of this world all under the head, the deformed head of Satan. It's best represented by Mystery Babylon. And Satan himself even even referenced and acknowledged this in his temptation of Christ when he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. All this is mine, you can have it. Satan himself even acknowledged this. Well, what's the point? What's the point here? Well, no matter your position or rank, no matter in which level of of institutional government you find in in creation, whether it be in a personal level, a familial level, a state level, a church level, all the above, at whatever level that you find yourself, if Christ Jesus is your peace, then you can have confidence when you face impossible odds when you come up against a very vicious, deep-rooted, personal sin, you can take a breath and you can have confidence that I can get over this. I can have victory over this besetting sin that rears its ugly head at me every single week, every single day, whatever the case may be. I can have confidence that I can overcome this if Christ is your peace. No, you, you can have peace. You can have confidence while facing these impossible odds that you're not just going to survive an attack and come, and come out barely breathing and, and shattered and ripped to shreds and, and bleeding with your, everything hanging out. No. It's beyond that. What does it say here? They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod, at its entrances. The word shepherd there in verse 6 in the Numeric Standard is better translated as it is in the King James as waste. They will waste away. They will waste the land of Assyria. You're not just going to survive an ambush But you can go and lay waste to enemy territory. You can stake a flag in the ground and say, No more. No more. This is Christ's territory. And I claim victory in his name. Walk in faith, brothers and sisters. Walk in confidence. Walk in peace. Take action. Take ground by the name, by the authority, and with the blessing of your Lord Jesus Christ. You can walk in confidence. Now, verses 7 and 8. And here we're going to see abundant provision in blessing. Here we return to this mention of remnant that we found already in the book of Micah. And he chooses and he uses this word Five times in his book. We saw it in, in 2.12. We saw it in 4.7. Now we see it twice here in chapter 5. And we're going to see it a final time in the, the last chapter. Chapter 7. The word remnant. But here it's specifically used uh, with as remnant of Jacob. Specifically mentioned remnant of Jacob. And this specific phrase is only used three times in all of the Old Testament. Once in Isaiah 10... And the other two times right here. Remnant of Jacob. Both instances, Isaiah and Micah, occur within the historical context of an Assyrian assault. Both instances speak of the remnant of having reliance upon God alone. And and if you take the greater context of Isaiah and moving into chapter 11, I personally believe that both instances of this usage of remnant of Jacob... Is in specific reference to Jewish believers, but if you recall back in in April when we considered uh, verses six through eight of chapter four, we looked at this verbiage. We we mentioned it. While it's not used specifically in chapter four, we recognized that 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 remnant and remnant of Jacob here is was very intentionally used. And embedded within this phraseology is the idea of God-given lameness and God-given blessing. And that same idea that we looked at then is presented again here. It's brought about that the remnant of Jacob is providentially placed. She's lame. She's afflicted. She's outcast. If you look here, remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples. She's not in her home. She's among many peoples. She's dispersed. And we can even think of the passage that, that Glenn read this morning, to the dispersed and the different places to which they were scattered. But the remnant of Jacob is providentially placed... And interestingly, when, when this remnant is when it's spoken of and, and it's usually being spoken of as being blessed, it's being blessed by being gathered, by being assembled from all these places. But here, the remnant is spoken of as being a blessing to others by being scattered. The remnant is described as dew and rain from the Lord. Again, abundant provision. In, in the book of Genesis, we have um, Isaac blessing his son uh, with this blessing in chapter 27. Uh, Isaac says this, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your brothers, your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. In Deuteronomy, we have uh, Moses singing his song, and it begins with these verses here. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, and as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. In Numbers, we have the, uh, the wicked prophet Balaam. In his, one of his oracles, in his discourse to Balak, he says this in chapter 23, For there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time, it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. Behold, a people rises like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself. It will not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. You see, in all of these passages, in these blessings... In all of these passages, in all these blessings, the emphasis is not really so much upon the remnant as it is upon their God. Jacob received his blessing through deception. You want to focus on the remnant, you want to focus on Jacob. He received it through deception. Not exactly righteous activity. Um, The Jews delivered from Egypt were considered rebellious, stiff-necked, Perverse and crooked. But what do we have in the Song of Moses? A blessing. Um, the Jews in the wilderness, when, um, when, when Balaam was called to curse them, well, they fell into Balaam's trap of immorality, of sexual deviancy and perversion, and the introduction of foreign religions through foreign women. You see, man has the tendency to think too highly of himself. And, and we Americans are one of the worst about this. We're one of the most guilty. That's kind of how our nation was born. And because of that, nationally, culturally, we love a good underdog story. We just, we just like it. Well, here, Judah is going to be given the victory not because she's the underdog, but despite she's the underdog. You know, like we have said earlier, it's not because you were the best. It's not because you were the greatest. The greatest in number. The greatest in strength. No, no, it's not. God didn't choose her because of that. And verses 10 through following prove that. The whole point of chapter 5 is not to exalt just the greatness of Judah, but the greatness of her God. That's the whole point here. He will be the just and loving king who cleanses, who rebukes, who sanctifies, who delivers His people. That's who He is. And He's going to execute vengeance on His enemies. It's the same king who's king over all. King over Jews and king over Gentiles. The remnant is simply the means by which the Lord chooses to bless the peoples and the nations here in verses 7 and 8. We think about the promise given to Abraham. In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The remnant is simply the means, the mechanism, the conduit for God's blessing. In, verses, in verse 7, the descriptor is, is dew and showers. Providential. Widespread. It's affecting everything and everyone. It's, it's common grace. The remnant is spoken of here in multiple, in plurality. In verse 8, the descriptor is as a lion. Unhindered. Unopposed. With authority. With strength. With Freedom of movement. And here it's spoken of in singularity. Individual believers scattered throughout the earth, scattered throughout all nations, serving in different capacities here and there, they bless those around them by being true image bearers of their Creator. They bless them. And when people see Christ in us, it's as if they're hearing God in the beginning saying, Behold, it is good. It is good. When, when you and I see Christians in the workplace, in the school, wherever we are at the grocery store, and something is different about them, it just makes us smile and say, Hey there, I, I see you. It's a refreshment, isn't it? It is a refreshment. It's a preservative. It's a life-giving force to society. And in this, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness is revealed. Now, the remnant collective, as we see in verse 8, serve as a force to be reckoned with. And here, this is why I think that theologians, at least one reason why they use the phrase or have the phrase the church militant. The church militant. Those who have been made weak are in a place of strength because their reliance is not upon themselves but upon their God. It's Godward focused reliance. And their power rests in their faith in God. We can think about Samson in, in his keeping of the Nazarite vow in the long hair. We recognize that Samson had some deficiencies in that and started looking to himself. But, but the connection can be made there. A reliance upon God. A setting apart. A dedication. And God's people... Are a threat to the kingdoms of this world, and by default, the kingdom of darkness. And just a casual look at church history reveals this. And if and if you're just halfway paying attention to current events, you're going to see it. Um, the Philistines viewed Israel as a threat. The Canaanites viewed Israel as a threat. The Jewish leader leadership and Rome considered Christ as a threat. And we see subsequent emperors viewing Christians as a threat to their rule. Um, Christians are historically mistreated, persecuted, primarily by governmental authorities because they serve another god. Because they say, Christ isn't Lord. I mean, Caesar isn't Lord. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. They're hated because they don't play by the rules of Mystery Babylon. They play by the rules of the King of Kings. And when the people of God, when they live so differently, when they speak so differently, when they think so differently and they speak out boldly against sin, against error, with the power and the authority of the Word of God, in this respect, the wrath of God is revealed when the church is militant. The wrath of God is revealed. Well, the truth that Micah is here proclaiming is the same truth which which Paul Uh, worship God in 2 Corinthians 2 when he says this but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests us through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death to the other an aroma from life to To life. And who's adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God we speak Christ in the sight of God. Micah and Paul are preaching the same sermon. Well, our passage ends in verse nine today, and here we have abundant provision in victory. Let me read verse 9 again. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be cut off. What do we learn here? Well, there's several things. And there's there's in fact there's several presuppositions that are found here. When we consider that all your enemies will be cut off, that's, that's a victory. That's, that's a victory. And victory presupposes conflict. Folks, we're not playing Tillywinks. We're not playing Monopoly. This is not a game where we're out to gain as much property or businesses or money as we possibly can. No, we're in a war. We're in a war. We're engaged in an age-long conflict between good and evil. A battle that is waged for human souls. We're in a war. This cutting off, it's a removal. It's, it entails a death. It is an intentional, permanent, destructive act. A lifting up of your hand and a cutting off. And by this act, it explicitly declares our allegiance. You're in a war and you're fighting. By your actions, you are saying whose side you're on. Victory presupposes conflict, conflict presupposes that we have enemies. This is not just a single adversary or a single opponent. It's multiple adversaries, multiple enemies. And the truth of the matter is that there are a myriad of hosts that stand in opposition to God. For Micah, it was 185,000. That's a lot of enemies. You know, previous generations, they fought against Again, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Philistines—I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Israel had a lot of enemies, and there's all sorts of enemies that are entrenched against Christ and His subjects. We will face opposition; it's a fact. We have enemies. Now, a subpoint that we're going to look at primarily next time is that they're not just all external. There's internal enemies as well. And um, when a a service member enters into the military, he, he has to stand at attention when he's enlisting or receiving a commission. He raises his right hand and he says, I do solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, and then there's this, foreign and domestic, foreign and domestic. And usually it's the domestic threats, it's the internal threats that are the most insidious and the most dangerous. And again, we're going to look at this last, next time, but the promise of God doesn't just have to do with us having, having an, uh, a mentality of us versus them. It's not just a circling of the wagons here and let's, let's just hold our own and everyone else is the enemy. No, it's greater than that. We're not just separating ourselves from the world. It's much deeper than that. As, as these verses will, will display to us later. And that passage in Joshua reflected that same truth. No. No, I'm a captain of the Lord. Well the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh they're not of the flesh but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of forces of ideas of truths and and it's a two-edged sword that cuts internally it cuts internally well conflict presupposes that we fight if you don't fight you're not engaged there's no conflict if you aren't fighting we are to lift up our hands. Lift up your hand. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries. We are to lift up our hands. What does that look like? Well, it may mean setting down your phone and lifting up your hands to worship. Instead of worshiping yourself, worship your Creator. It may look like that. It may look like you you take this newborn little child and you raise him up and you say, Lord, I dedicate him to You. I'm going to lift him up with my hands and do everything in my power to train him, to raise him, and to lead him to Jesus. It may be that you lift up your hands with some violence. And by that I mean discipline and restraint against sin. Whether it's in the family. Whether it's as a representative of, of as law enforcement. Whether it's in church discipline. It may mean that you have to raise your hand in discipline. It may mean that you lift up your, hair, your hands in prayer and say, oh God, I cannot handle this situation. Please help me. Please deliver my brother. Please help my mother, my father, my friend, my coworker. Help me, God. But it presupposes that we fight. So fight. The Lord accomplishes victory through our hands. Isn't that absolutely amazing? Isn't that amazing? that God would use you and I and our actions to accomplish His victory. It's amazing. He gives to His servants the sword of the Word of God and He commands us to go out and to fight. To go out and to preach. Preach. Teach. And whether it's silent teaching like the dew or whether it's thunderous like a thunderstorm... Like a lion roaring, we are to use the Gospel to fight. And as Stonewall Jackson said, duty is ours. Consequences are God's. Do your duty. Whatever level. And here's another one. God fighting, with God fighting, that presupposes victory. Victory. If God's fighting, well, who's greater than God? No one. If God is fighting, there's victory guaranteed. And this verse in Micah chapter 5 says that God will have the victory. All his enemies will be vanquished. And if we're in his kingdom, we win too. We win too. This truth is is pictured again in Revelation. And if you haven't read it, it's okay, you could skip to the end and read about the end. It's good to have that. It's good to cheat a little bit in that regard and look to the end. Victory, with God fighting and God receiving victory, victory presupposes finality. It's over. It's done. It may be an age-long conflict, but it will not be an eternal one. It will not be an eternal conflict. No, time will end. The conflict will end one day, and the conquest will be total. It will be final. And that last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Is death. Well... In conclusion here, the thought that's introduced in verse 9 will be completed, that is, the enemy's being cut off. That will be completed in verse 15. And as we're going to see through the next five, six verses, that process is not the process that Israel chose. And it's not the process that you or I will probably choose either or will want to to have. It's a very painful process. But again, for the remnant of Jacob, there is a God-ordained blessing through pain, through lameness, through affliction, through outcastedness, through weakness. But even as we read, all your enemies will be cut off we again turn, as we did a, a, few, a couple sermons ago, to Romans chapter 8 and ask, what do we ask? We ask, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Micah declared to the remnant of Jacob, he declared the word of God that said, Jacob have I loved, But Esau I have hated. Jacob have I loved. And we can say, along with both Micah and Paul, this. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Men and women, boys and girls, brothers and sisters, there is abundant provision to be found within Christ. Abundant provision of confidence, of blessing, of victory. But outside of Christ, there's also abundant provision. It's an abundant provision of wrath, of cursing, and of defeat. The question is, are you within or without? Well, May the Lord bless you with His Holy Word and give you confidence this week May He bless you this week and give you victory over sin. We dismiss.